Open up uh, Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, and then as you're doing that, I don't know if you guys know about this, I, I drive, so I live over by Villa Olivia. Um, yeah, right, I drive, how, how about that? I live over and to get here to church, I have to drive. I drive to Stearns Road, so uh, by Munger and Stearns, uh, and I drive all the way down here to the church. And and um, on on the other side of 59 from here on Stearns Road, I don't know if you know this, but they've been building these monstrosities. Uh, and like, and I, so I used to, there are these awful big warehouses, just massive concrete buildings that they, they've started putting up there on Stearns Road. And so, um, so I used to drive home from the church here and I would look and there would be like a skyline of trees. And now I drive home from the church here and the skyline is this massive concrete building. I get like three, I'm three miles away from these buildings and they're so big that I can see them like on my entire way before I get home. And so, so I'm thrilled about these concrete buildings, as you can tell. I notice them every day. They've been working. They've been doing construction. I think they started back in the spring. They've been doing construction on these things every day. I, I would leave, uh, and then I, I would come to, to the church here, and then I would head back home. And by the time I got back home in the evening, I would notice they had, like, another wall of the building up. It was, like, one piece by another piece. This morning, I drove by, and they were painting the building this morning. So that was, that was exciting to watch. But... Um, it's just a little annoying because they, uh, they're taking up this space on the skyline on the drive home. Now, I want you to imagine something with me for a second. Imagine that, uh, that instead of big concrete buildings, instead of warehouses, you have a guy out there with his family, and this guy and his family are building a really big boat. They're building a very big boat. Uh, and so uh, now they, they've been working on this every day. They're out there working on the boat. It seems like they have a different piece that they're, they're putting on all the time. And this boat is a monstrosity. It takes up space in the skyline. And, and imagine that this guy who's building the boat, he builds the boat during the day, but then in the evenings he walks around town and he knocks on doors. And this is what he tells you. He says, hey, I want to let you know God is going to send a massive flood. And the only way that you can escape the flood is by getting on the boat. That's the only way. That's the only way that you'll be able to survive the flood. So guess what? You're invited to join us on the boat. So now this guy who's building this, this massive monstrosity out on Stearns Road, uh, he is now inviting people. He's telling people God's going to flood the world, and he's going to invite them to come onto the boat. What will Bartlett think of this guy? Just, I'm curious. I, I'm on the social media pages for what it's worth. People and Bartlett complain about everything. They complain about all the, like, unfortunate realities that exist. Everybody, they would be talking about this, this guy and saying, like, he's crazy. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Every day this guy spends out there working on Stearns Road, it's going to be another reminder to the whole town that he thinks that they're all going to die in a flood unless they get on his boat. And, and so there's got to be something done about this, right? So can you imagine a real-life Noah in Bartlett? A real-life Noah in Bartlett. The other day, it was funny. I got a chance to be a fake Noah in Bartlett. I got to go to the school. So I, I have a picture up here. You can see what I looked like, I think, Maybe. It's not up there. Oh, that's okay. Uh, we must not have saved it. I, it was, I did not look like Noah, for what it was worth. I just had some, some 
in a bathrobe, and that was about the best I could do to look like Noah. But we shared the story of Noah at Crossroads this week. And, uh, but, but what would it be like to have a real-life Noah and Bartlett? How would folks talk about him? Would they, uh, would they say, oh, this, guy, this, guy's, this guy's not very smart. This guy's not very nice to us. He's so judgmental of people. You know what, like the place where he's building that ark, they could be like building a gas station there or a mall or something else, but he's building an ark there. But do you think anyone would ask, you know, is, do you think it's true? Like, do you think anybody, it would go through anybody's heads, the possibility that, that the things that he is saying might be true? Like, what, what if God actually had spoken to this guy? What if the ark is really our only means of being saved? You know, we've been uh, looking at the book of 1 Peter, and I want to tell you what Noah has to do with 1 Peter. Because Peter, he loves this story of Noah. In fact, he references it all the time in his writings. He references it in this book, and he references it in 2 Peter as well. And um, I just want to tell you, I want to walk you through what Peter's idea is of the church and, and why Noah is important to Peter. This is why. It's because the local church is an ark and Christians are its crew. The local church is an ark and Christians are its crew. So God actually, you know what? He has a personal investment in this ark, in the arks that exist here. Because the crew of this ark is joined together by the blood of his son. Like, that's how he paid to get people to be a part of the boat, to be on the boat. In fact, the blood of Jesus is the payment for entry into the ark. And it's the means and the promise of salvation from God's judgment against sin. So now we've been, we've been going through 1 Peter, and, and we've been reading as Peter has been instructing a number of, of local churches, just what, what does it mean to be the church as, as you're facing these increasingly hostile realities around you. You know, uh, people had been kicked out of their homes, people are being socially excluded uh, for being Christians, simply because they claim the name of Christ, these are the things that were happening to them. And, and you know, like Noah was likely in his day, like Noah was reviled for building the ark. These Christians had been reviled for their faith. And they were reviled because they had a savior who went before them, who was also reviled, who people talked poorly about him and and said awful things about him. And and so, in fact, if we looked at the book of 1 Peter, I just want to let you know, there no less than 16 times has Peter referenced the suffering that these Christians are facing or the suffering that their Savior faced. No less than 16 times does he keep in front of them the fact that suffering will come. In fact, you've already faced it, and your Savior faced it as well. He calls them exiles in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, chapter 1, verse 6. You have a faith that's been tested by fire. You're following a Savior who suffered in chapter 1, verse 11. Following a Savior who was rejected in chapter 2, verse 4. You will suffer unjustly, chapter 2, verse 19. You will suffer when doing good, chapter 2, verse 21. Evil will be done against you, chapter 2, verse 9. You will be reviled, chapter 3, verse 10. They will harm you. You will suffer for righteousness' sake. You will be slandered. You will suffer because you're a Christian. You will be maligned for your protocols. Like, if I'm a distant observer, and I'm looking at these 
things that Peter has to say to Christians, and looking at the things that they're actually going through, I, I could say, you know what? God sure lets a lot of hard stuff come against the people that he says he loves. In fact, isn't like one of the four spiritual laws, I don't know if you guys know about the four spiritual laws, but one of the four spiritual laws is this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know, we hear that, but, but when we hear that, we don't always think of the things that this church, that these churches that Peter are, are, is writing to, that they went through. So what's the deal? Why is God letting these things happen? So Peter, he's, he's going to dig into that question. He's going to dig into the why behind all of these circumstances that are coming to them. And, and for what it's worth, you know, Peter, he keeps bringing back this discussion of Noah and the flood. He introduced it in chapter 3. And then, uh, and then as he ends up, as he finishes out chapter 3 and then into verse four, or chapter 4, he talks about the flood of debauchery that comes against them. And then every time he talks about judgment after that point, it's like a reference back to this illustration of the flood that he's using. And so Peter, he's talking about these things, and I, and I want to tell you why he's talking about Noah. I want to tell you why. It's because he has in his mind a very specific conversation that he had with Jesus, that the disciples had with Jesus. It was in reference to the kinds of things that would happen before Jesus comes back. There, were, there would be a number of things to happen in the world before Jesus comes back. And so this is what Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 24, verses 28 and 29. It says, for as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Peter has this conversation with Jesus in his mind as he's writing to these churches. He's writing to them in the midst of a reality where where they have to understand that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for all people, and, and, and he wants them to keep this in their mind, and he wants them to understand the role that they have to play in light of that reality. So today we're going to have two questions and one truth to glean from this passage. The first question is this. How do we respond to the tests? How do we respond to the tests? Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter, he comes, he comes out and he acknowledges a reality. He says, hey, these hard things are happening to you. Now this is no big deal for Peter. He's been talking about it all the time. But if Peter, if Peter actually sees the local church as an ark, then he sees all of the things that are coming against these Christians as tests, tests of how strong that ark is. And he, he's saying, hey, don't be surprised. These trials, they're going to come, and they're going to keep coming, and they're not going to stop coming, and you're going to face one thing, and then it's going to be done, and then something else is going to come against you. And so, so you might ask the question, okay, if God is testing for something, like what in the world is God testing for? What is God testing for? Why is he sending tests? Uh, in seminary, when I was preparing to be a pastor, they made me take a test at the very beginning of seminary. And they were, I, I didn't really understand this test. I asked this uh, similar sort of question. So uh, they, they asked uh, questions on this test like, how often do you get angry? Uh, do you sleep better after attending a party? 
Do you enjoy shooting guns? Uh, is your sleep fitful and disturbed? Do you worry about your health? Do you enjoy detective or mystery stories? Now, let me tell you, that combination of questions, I'm wondering, what in the heck are these people testing for? I have no idea. I can't figure it out. Apparently, it's some sort of psyche valve to see if I'm sane or something like that. They have to tell me whether or not I can keep walking on this. But these questions made no sense to me. I was like, what, what are they testing for? This doesn't make sense. But as we read scripture, it becomes clear that God actually has a purpose to his tests. God is testing arcs to see if they stand and to make them sturdier. God is testing arcs to see if they stand and to make them sturdier. So if the local church is an ark and Christians are its crew, God is testing arcs to see if they stand and to make them sturdier. So will Christians and their churches be sturdy arcs that offer salvation to the world, or will they be swept up in the floods of society? God really wants to know whether or not local churches and the Christians that make them up can be trusted over the long haul to do the job that he's called them to do. So he's testing us, he's evaluating us, but he's also equipping us. That's the idea that, that Peter puts forward here. And so, so the first response, the first response to these tests is to expect the tests. Expect the tests. That's why he says, don't be surprised. He says, hey, man, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come. It's, don't, don't be surprised when these things come against you. And, and the whole book of 1 Peter tells us the kinds of things that we should be looking for, the kinds of things that God's going to test us in, the kinds of things that the church, the local church, needs to make a stand in. So here are the five things. There are five big categories that Peter talks about all the way through his book. The first category is in devotion to Jesus. He wants to know that the local church is going to stand in their devotion to Jesus. He wants to know that the local church is going to stand in its commitment to the word. And so, so he talks about the word at the end of, uh, of, at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 1. And, and at the end of chapter 1, he's, he's working through this and he's explaining to them just what the purpose of the word is, the, the purpose of truth, the need to make a stand in truth and the things that the Bible teaches. The, th the third thing that they need to make a stand in is in purity of life. They need to make a stand in purity of life. And he talks about this in three different places. He focuses in on, on purity of life, the kinds of things that we need to make a stand in as a church. In submission to authority, that's the fourth thing. He spends a whole a massive section of the book just focusing on submission to authority and making sure that they recognize authority. The fifth big category in 1 Peter, in love of each other. They need to make a stand in love of each other. These, like a church doing these five things is a church that is standing, is an ark that will last over the long haul. So for Peter, these are the things that set Christians apart from everybody else as pressure increases in society, as things get more and more difficult. And apparently God is so interested in these things that he's going to test them. He's going to make sure that each of these things remains true of Christians and of the local church. So, so response number one is that we expect the tests to come. Response number two, we rejoice when the tests come. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
You know, these tests that God sends, uh, these ways that God tests the faith to test these arcs, these tests are the proving ground of our faith. So, So Peter is saying that these Christians, they should take joy when these tests come because what it's gonna do is it's gonna simply reveal the faith that was already there all along. Every time a Christian withstands these tests, even to the point of suffering, he says, their faith and hope in God shine through in that moment. So as these churches, they, they face impending suffering for, for the name of Jesus. And Debbie talked this morning to their churches around the world this morning that are facing impending suffering for the name of Jesus. As these churches face this, this is what he's saying. He's saying these tests, these are opportunities for God to reveal what Christ in you is made of. These tests, they're, they're going to actually bring you out the other side of the test stronger than you were before. And these tests, they're opportunities to remember the gift that awaits you when Jesus comes back. So rejoice at the tests because the tests are doing something really, really good. Okay, so the next, pe- the next question that Peter answers, what happens when we withstand the tests. What happens when we withstand the tests? Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Peter says that there is blessing when you withstand the tests. When you're insulted, when you're treated like dirt because you're a Christian, he calls you blessed. And so I'm just like wondering, okay, why Why blessed? And he says, in the next words, he says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Okay, so when it says the spirit of glory and of God, you're going, oh, that's the Holy Spirit, right? And I would say, yes, absolutely. That is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, you know? And we've been, we talk about this all the time. We say, when we place our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us. But I I, want to point out one thing. He says it rests upon you. When the Spirit rests upon you, that's actually a reference to something we call the Shekinah glory of God. It's a a reference to the glory of God. When, When God's glory would rest in a place, it was a symbol to his people that God was with them. So, so when God would make his glory fill the temple, the Shekinah glory of God rests upon the temple. That was how he let his people know that he was with them. And when, uh, when God went before the Israelites through the wilderness in a cloud, that was the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of God resting with them. And when he went with them in a pillar of fire, that was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the God revealing his presence to his people and letting them know that he is with them. You know, he's telling them, take comfort. Because, you know, when you withstand these tests, when these words and these insults come against you because of the name of Jesus, that should be a sign to you. That should tell you something. That should create no question in your mind. When you face insults for the name of Jesus, that should convince you that Jesus is, in fact, with you in that moment. There's no question about it. Rest assured that God is present in the midst of that. He goes on in verse 15, and he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, so right here, this is what he's saying. He's saying, don't suffer meaninglessly. You know, there, there were these people, they called them ascetics. Ascetics liked to uh, bring on themselves all sorts of uh, just uh, torture and different, they would get themselves into intentional situations where they would suffer. And some of them would, would even break laws if it meant that they could be imprisoned. They would find different ways to suffer. And, and Peter's saying, don't suffer for that. Suffer for something that's actually worth it. And here's what's interesting. In the Roman world, when, when Christians were arrested, they weren't arrested and called Christians. They were arrested and called criminals. They were thrown into the, the bag of criminals with everybody else. They were considered to be common criminals. And, and they were even called evildoers. And, and when they're calling you evildoers, when, when they're using these terms against you, when they're calling you criminals, don't let it be because you're actually doing evil. But let it be because you're seeking to glorify God in everything. Let it be because you're doing what God calls Christians to do. And then in verse 16, he uses the word. This is one of the few places in all of Scripture, for what, it, for what it's worth, that, that the title Christian is applied to people who believe in Jesus. This doesn't actually come up all that often. This is one of the few places, and I want you to understand why Peter is using it, because in that world, in the first century world, when the title Christian was used, it was used by people in society as a sneer against people who are following Jesus. It was a slanderous word that people would use against Jesus' followers. That's why they used the term Christian. And, and uh, what Peter is saying here is he's saying, hey, when they use this slanderous word against you, don't be ashamed of the word. Don't be ashamed of the word, but actually like take ownership of the name. Be proud of the name that you are given. When they revile you and they use that name, don't be ashamed because you know what? God gets a lot of glory when you stand firm while they make fun of you, while they insult you. So, so the, the question that we asked was, what happens when we withstand the tests? The answer is this, while they insult you, the God of the universe favors you. While they insult you, the God of the universe favors you. Okay, so then Peter draws things to a close with a truth. A truth. The tests reveal our trust. Verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So remember, God, he's, he's looking, he's evaluating, he's trying to figure out which arcs are going to stand. Will these churches proclaim the gospel of salvation? Will they tell people around them about Jesus? Will they remain firm in the truth of Scripture while culture progresses in another direction? Will they continue to love each other even while the heat gets turned up? Will other people, when they come here, will other people be loved here? Will they stay true to the gospel when it becomes inconvenient, when it becomes culturally inappropriate, when it becomes illegal? You know, uh, Jesus, he did something similar to what Peter's talking about here. Jesus actually, like, uh, in the book of Revelation, very, very beginning of the book, you get seven letters to seven churches. Jesus writes to those churches, and he, he explains to them his evaluation of them. 
He, he talks about the things that he's excited about, the things that he's, he's glad that they're doing. He talks about some things that he's really concerned about. And in fact, to some of those churches, he even says, hey, I'm going like, to shut your church down. I'm going to snuff out your lamp. I'm going to get rid of it. And uh, we'll, we'll find another church to take over those people that you're doing because guess what? You're not doing the thing that I'm calling you to do. Right? So this is what Jesus does. This is what God does. He's evaluating churches. He's figuring out, will these churches actually stand? And the overall thrust is, I want to see how you're doing. I want to test you. So sometimes, you know what, Christians, um, we can lament because of what's happening in our country. Because we can look at the state of our country and go, oh, it used to be, uh, America used to be such an, uh, a Christian nation, right? And those, those things, uh, you know, are certainly, they, there's some level of truth there. I don't want to discount that. But I wonder if the church in America over the years just got comfortable and weak. Like over the course of the years, the church got comfortable and weak. In fact, it's probable that what we did is we relied really heavily on the structures of society to accomplish our mission for us instead of actually doing our mission ourselves. Right. So I wonder if the site, I mean, the, the cultural pressure for Christians is not like super duper increased by any means, but it's a slight increase. And I wonder if this slightly increasing cultural pressure is God testing to see which churches are actually going to stand firm in the things that he calls the church to do. So uh, I'll just share some reality of statistics with you. Uh, There's this guy, his name is Ed Stetzer. He teaches at Wheaton and he uh, runs the Billy Graham Center down at Wheaton College. And uh, every once in a while, um, there are these pastoral equipping events that I have an organization that sends me to them like once every three months or so. And so I get to go for free to these events. And he shared some some interesting statistics with me. You know, uh, we talk a lot about how Christianity in America is declining at at a rapid rate that nobody's ever seen before. And and we see these people called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, the nuns, people who have no religious affiliation, no religious faith, they call themselves the nuns. This number of people is increasing while the number of Christians is decreasing. It's interesting, if you evaluate the, the churches that are shrinking, the churches that are losing people, as you kind of look across the board, what seems to be happening is that churches who have altered something about what the church is supposed to be are the churches that are declining the fastest. So, so, uh, so mainline denominations have, have made decisions that we're going we're gonna to change our stance on cult- cultural hot-button issues because we want to show that we're welcoming to everyone, that we have space for everyone, and, and those kinds of things. So they're, they're, they're kind of opening up the doors. We're going to change what the Bible says about these things because we want to reach more people. And what's interesting is that the moment that those denominations make a decision like that, you actually see the denomination plummet at a rapid rate. So the other interesting thing is, if you look across the board at churches that are actually growing, the the only churches in our country, the only Christian churches in our country that are growing right now are churches that are preaching and teaching the Bible. Churches that are preaching and teaching the Bible and staying true and striving to stay true to the things that Jesus calls the church to be. Those are the churches that are growing in our culture right now. 
So churches that, that stand firm in truth and their convictions and that, that are seeking to live out the commands of Scripture, they're by and large the only churches that are growing. In fact, as, as you watch this, uh, you'll actually, um, as, as we've watched the trends go downward for Christians in America, you'll actually probably see an uptick in people who call themselves a part of an evangelical church. That's probably in the next Pew Research study that comes out, that's, uh, that's likely they're projecting that that's going to go up. The point is this, God is going to send more and more tests to reveal and better develop what churches and the people who claim the name of Christ are actually made of. And these tests, they exist so that true churches will learn how to better stand out against the floodwaters when the floodwaters start coming. So so when the floodwaters start coming, you don't want to start shooting holes in your boat. You don't, because the, the boat's going to sink, right? You don't want to do that. You want to be what the boat is called to be. You want to be the boat that's going to stand. So will you be a sturdy ark and proclaim the gospel and lead people to salvation? That's the question that the church has to answer. So, so judgment, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This is what God's doing. He's allowing these tests, these challenging circumstances to come against these churches. And in verse 17, this is what he says. He says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is Peter's logic. He's saying, hey, if God's doing this with us, people who Jesus saved, then how concerned should we be for the people who haven't trusted Jesus? He's, he uses this word scarcely. Um, we should think of it as barely. So like righteous people, even, even the most righteous person, the only way that they get, uh, get onto the ark, the only way they become a part of God's kingdom is by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that we actually cross the line in the first place. So if the righteous person, if the most righteous person can only get on by the blood of Jesus, then what is to become of those who he, he says, what is to become of the ungodly and the sinner? So church, we have a problem because every day we're interacting with people who don't recognize that their broken choices have created a debt between them and God. And you know what? We have the best news for them. We have the best news that Jesus will actually pay that debt for them. Jesus will give them away onto the boat if they simply trust and follow him. So do we love them enough to tell them? Do we love them enough to invite them onto the ark with us? Do we recognize that the stronger our church stands and the things that God has called us to, the better it is for the communities that we inhabit because we're an ark that stands out against the floodwaters. Verse 19 says this. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Imagine being a part of the persecuted church and hearing these words, let, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will just trust your Lord and trust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So you want your church to stand as an ark when things get heated. Trust that God is faithful Keep an eternal perspective. Believe that God actually knows what he's doing and continue doing good. So what? So what? 
Number one, there are three arcs on Stearns Road. We get the privilege of sharing our building with Ebenezer. We get the privilege of sharing our building with another church called Roca de Salvacion. They both use this building. There are three churches that are using this building here on Stearns Road, and we're all trying to figure out what it means to reach people for Jesus. We're all trying to be arcs. We're all trying to proclaim the salvation that is available to people in God. Yeah, I know. It's great. It's really great. You know, there was a former pastor in, in our area who, uh, it was Bill Hybels. I, I don't want to say his name because, you know, whatever. But I'll just let you know. It was Bill Hybels. He, but he, has, he, he said this, and I, I will never forget it. This is like his quote that he's known for. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. The only hope that exists comes from us doing the things that Jesus called us to do. As each of our churches, these are the churches that are here in this building, as we each engage our neighbors, as we pray for them, as we invite them to come to church, as we engage in spiritual conversations with them, as we love them well, as we share the good news with them, as we maybe even welcome some people into this Christ-bought family of ours, we offer the most significant hope that there is. So that's what we are called to do. This is what we exist for to give people hope of a renewed relationship with God and to escape the impending judgment of God that is coming because of human betrayal and rebellion. That's the promise that we offer. Number two, we've barely begun to experience testing, so do the hard work now. We've barely begun to experience testing. You know, the heat, we, we talked about, we've talked about the heat getting turned up, that, that uh, it's becoming more and more inconvenient to be a Christian. It's still not hard. It's still not hard in our country, this country here, to be, to be a Christian. It's not hard to do the things that God has called us to do. And I tell you, if the pressure does increase, and I mean things look like pressure is going to keep slightly increasing and slightly increasing, it's going to be a whole lot easier to do the hard things now that God is calling us to do than it will be when the heat is turned up. So is there some secret sin that you really need to eradicate from your life? Do you need to seek some deeper life in the Spirit? Do you need a more intentional prayer life? Do you need to be better grounded in Scripture than you have been? Do you need just a deeper and more regular devotional life? Maybe you just need more time spent loving your Christian brothers and sisters. I don't know what the thing is, but whatever it is, whatever your next step is, take it now and don't wait to take it. Because we have ample opportunity to be, to be prepared for whatever testing might come. So whatever your next step is, it's going to be 10 times easier to take it now than it will be when the pressure gets turned up. So then take your next step. Identify your next step. What is the next thing that God wants to build into you? That'd be the question that I would leave you with. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you just for the opportunity you've given us to to gather together and worship here this morning. I thank you for what you are calling this church to be. I, th I thank you for what you're calling all of the churches that meet in this building to be. To be arcs that offer salvation to people. 
that offer the promise of a hope and a future. Lord, I pray that you would, um, before you go and send us to compel other people with the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would compare, compel our hearts with the gospel. Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, that we would be so grounded in the word of God and the gospel that, that Lord, these things would flow out of us. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to recognize more and more the dire state of people who are not following you. Lord, and may we actually do the thing that you've called us to do. May we actually carry out this mission that you've called us to with faithfulness and trusting our souls to a faithful creator. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.